Welcome to the One Hope Church podcast, where we believe Jesus is our one hope for a better life and a better world. We hope this message encourages you. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, One Hope. It's so good to see you. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Bradley, and I get to serve here at One Hope as the worship pastor. You know, it's almost been 15 years that we that my family has been here at One Hope, and we are so thankful for every passing day and passing year. So thank you for allowing us to continue to serve here. It's been a fantastic run so far. Looking forward to the next 15 or 20 years, if you will have me. But I'm so glad that you're here. So glad that we're here and in this together. Last week, we started a brand new series called Keeping Hope Alive. And now in this series, we discuss, and, and Scott talked about last week, the beginning of a culture that we want to shape and build here at One Hope, but not so that we can have that culture and only have it right here with One Hope, but so that we can take it out to the world. That's the most important part about building a culture here, is that it's not just for us, it's for the world. And last week, Scott began the series with a culture of sending. Now, I embodied a culture of sending this week. We all embodied some form of that, especially if we sent students, children, or a spouse or a loved one back into the school system. I had three. My wife is a teacher starting year 20 in education. My children, eighth grade and fourth grade. So last week when we prayed over all of those faculty and staff and administration and student and back-to-school blessing, we sent them out into the world to be a light for him. But perhaps... Pastor Scott embodied this culture a little bit more this week as he and Amber took Ellie, their oldest, away to college and dropped her off in South Carolina. So if you see him this morning and his eyes are bloodshot and, and red, it's because he's, he might still actually be crying. I he doesn't want to talk about it, but he might still be crying. But today we are continuing the series, Keeping Hope Alive, and we're in the second culture of this series. Now, I have a teenage daughter who likes to be in the know. And she asked me uh, about a week ago, Dad, what are, you, what are you preaching on on Sunday? And I said, well, actually, I I'm preaching on worship. And <laughs> I got the typical teenage response, complete with eye roll and everything. And I can say this, I'll have to say it again in the second service because she'll be in here, but she's, of course, of course. And, and I, I mean, honestly, I get it. The worship pastor is preaching on worship. I bet he's going to tell us that we have to sing louder sing or clap our hands more you might even be squirming in your seat you're like oh he's gonna ask us to raise our hands more he's gonna ask us to move or dance around like Calicus or somebody else on the platform and, and listen I'm not gonna tell you any of those things about worship but I will say I've never actually preached a message on specifically worship and what that means so we're all if we're in treat and we're all in this together okay so is that all right with you? I want us to talk about today how we can build together a culture of worship, that we can identify and put into practice a culture of worship that not only shakes the walls of this building, but calls for an outpouring of the Spirit of God, a move of God so powerful that we can't help but take it to the world and into our community. That is what we want out of these cultures that we're building and sharing and shaping together. So if that's okay with you, is that okay with you? You can say amen or say yes. You can go, I like audience participation. I enjoyed being out in the congregation and, and singing along with you this morning and watching you engage with God. It's such a great thing to see and do and engage in together. So thank you so much for that. When I was about 13 years old, 
I got my very first guitar, and it was a red and white Fender Stratocaster, and it was beautiful. And I think we may have a picture that you'll see on the screen. Now, the guy holding the guitar, that is a good-looking little kid. That guitar is nearly as big as me. Um, but I love that guitar. And my uncle, my uncle is a, a phenomenal guitar player, and he taught me the very first notes of the very first song that I partially learned to play. I didn't learn the whole song, but I learned the first notes. And as any good kid that grows up in Alabama, I learned the very first notes of the song Sweet Home Alabama. And some of you, you that melody is already in your head and now will be stuck into your head until the, at least the end of the service. So I learned those first few notes on that guitar. I loved that guitar. And it wasn't long until I got another guitar. A neighbor that lived next door gave me an old beat-up rusted strings dinged up acoustic guitar and it would be on that guitar and and that electric guitar that I learned and listened and began to play the songs that I heard on the radio and was surrounded by and culture around us now I was a kid in the 90s late 80s through the 90s so you can imagine the songs that I learned to play but I also learned some classics right the very first song I learned to play in its complete entirety was shower the people from none other than James Taylor loved some James Taylor still listen to that today but I also love 90s country that's my jam so if you've ever ridden in a car with me you know that prime country on Sirius satellite radio it's where that's where my station lives so I learned a lot of Garth Brooks now as a worship pastor I get a lot of like song requests some of you are like, yeah, I've given you some of those song requests, still waiting on that. But I get a lot of song requests, but I have yet to get a song request for Garth Brooks or James Taylor. Imagine that. But I will tell you that this past spring, in a seminary theology class on prayer, I was able to, to sneak in the lyrics to unanswered prayers by Garth Brooks into this theology paper, and I got an A. So it can be done. It can be done. Right? So before you call me a sinner, before you ask God to fire me for listening to people like James Taylor or Garth Brooks or any other 90s country artist, I did grow up in the church. I did grow up around church music. I did all the things, kids choir, kids musicals, youth choir, youth musicals, youth ensembles, I sang solos and the like all over the place, listened to my mom sing all the time, and I was around to church worship. I was around music in the church for my entire life up until now, clearly. And so I began to believe that worship was music and that music was worship. Fast forward to my teenage years. My friends and I, we would, because we were, you know, super fun and had lots going on, we would gather at places like Sokol Park or any other para facility, and we would sing songs together. We would pray together. We would read scripture together. We would worship together on Friday or Saturday nights. That's what we did for fun when I was a teenager. So I was, I was wild and crazy, let me tell you. When I was 15... I went to youth camp in Louisiana, and there at that youth camp, I began to sense God calling me to something more in my life. God was calling me to serve the church. He was calling me to be a pastor, but I had no idea what that meant. All I knew was that I liked music, I liked to sing, I could play guitar, and so I began just to shape my view of worship in the church based only on my musical ability and what I could bring to God with my music. That began to be my identifying marker of worship. And that informed my decision-making through late high school and through college as I went to school and graduated. I even traveled around in the summers leading worship at camps throughout the country. 
And now the early 2000s was when this idea, this title of worship leader sort of was coined and started taking on traction. No longer was it a music minister or a music pastor or a music director. It was a worship leader because worship and music became interchangeable. They became synonymous with each other to where one really meant the other. That was my reality. Now, that's not far from the truth. Christians, for centuries, have used music as a tool, as a method for expressing and engaging with God in worship, right? The Bible even says over and over and over again, sing to the Lord, make music, sing praise to the Lord. So we get that from the Bible. But I came to realize very soon that we cannot build a definition of worship or a culture of worship based on music, and that being the foundation alone. That cannot be all of it. And I struggled with this thought. I struggled with this realization. And to be honest with you, I was a little apprehensive about this teaching today in, in front of you, because I mean, shouldn't the worship pastor be able to easily articulate what a culture is of worship and how to practice that and embody that and create an environment that fosters a culture of worship? And the answer is yes. Yes, he should be able to do that. And I hope that we can do that. But truth be known, I struggle with those same problems and those same pitfalls of worship that we all do. Because worship is not just music. Music is powerful. It's soul-speaking. It's culture-shaking. It's also biblically mandated. But worship is not just music. Music can be, it should be, and it is a part of worship, but it can't be the very heart or the center of worship. And if we aren't careful with how we craft a culture of worship in our world today, we will begin to build one that is defined more on consumerism and celebrity than on the heart of God. We begin to build a culture of worship that stands not on the truth of Scripture or the hope in Jesus, but it stands instead on our favorite hymn or our favorite song or our favorite worship band. And that is the opposite of what a, counter, of what a culture of worship is. And what we do we have to realize that any one thing, any one thing that we place on a pedestal of worship cannot replace the one person that belongs there. It cannot replace the one person that belongs there. So we get our definition of worship. Our word worship really comes from an old English word for worship. Now, it is pronounced the same it is spelled very differently. The old English word for worship simply means to ascribe worth. To ascribe worth. And I love this passage in Psalm 96. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. See, right there, the very onset of Psalm 96, the psalmist declares the one toward which we should direct all of our value, the one which we should direct all of our worth, and that is to the Lord. Because true worship, authentic worship, is nothing more than ascribing worth to the Lord. 
That is the most simple definition that we can say. We can say it this way. Worship is the continuous outpouring of worth directed toward our Creator. That is worship. The continuous outpouring of worth directed toward our Creator. It's not something that's confined to music or compartmentalized to a building such as this. It can find its outpouring in song. Yes, we just experienced that together. But it can also find its outpouring in things like art. It's not only confined to a building, and we often identify it with a building like this, but it takes place in office buildings. It takes place in movie theaters, in cafeterias. It takes place in all of these places. Worship is not only found in the lines and spaces of a music staff. It is found in the brushstrokes of an artist. It is found in the laboring hands of believers serving those in need. That is worship. When I was in high school, ninth and 10th grade, our place of worship at school became Mrs. Adams' English class on the second floor of Central High, West, Central High School West. And in ninth and 10th grade, every morning before school, we would meet in Miss Adams's class, and we would read the Bible, and we would talk about God, and we would pray together, and we would sing together. We would worship together in a school classroom, because worship is not confined to a building. Even here, as you walk through the hallways of One Hope, you are surrounded by artwork that depicts the stations of the cross, the Via Della Rosa, the path that Christ walked, documented in Scripture, on his way to the cross. That artwork was created by a dear friend of mine named Tim. Nowhere in this building will you find Tim's name, because Tim didn't create that artwork as a means of giving honor and glory to himself. No, Tim created that as a means of worshiping God the Father and ascribing worth to him. Right outside this hallway, if you've not been, we have a gallery that's full of art made and crafted by you, people of One Hope. So if you go out this door and turn to the right, you'll end up in the gallery. And if you haven't been, I want to encourage you to go and check out that gallery. But I was talking to one of the artists that has some pieces there. Her name is Rhoda. Many of you know Rhoda Vaughn. And Rhoda and I were talking about a couple of the pieces that she brought with her. She said, Bradley, I was, I was really... I was nervous. I was apprehensive about creating anything to bring to the gallery at One Hope. I said, why? She said, well, I was worried that it wouldn't be good enough. I said, Rhoda, Rhoda, you're a phenomenal artist. And she said, yeah, I was worried that it wouldn't be good enough. But then, but then God changed my heart and changed my outlook. And I began to see what I was creating, not as a means of honoring myself, but as a means of glorifying and ascribing worth to God. And she began to see her art as a means of worship. And what happens is that we can't see things like art for art's sake or music for music's sake. We have to see it as art for God's sake, music for God's sake. All of these things, we do it for the glory of God, not for ourselves. But the problem is that for each of us, we are going to ascribe worth to something or someone. Something is getting our worship. And if it's not God, it's something of the world. And before we can ever build a culture of worship, 
of authentic worship. We have to come to grips with that. Before we can build a culture of true and proper worship, we have to expose the roots of our own idolatry. Because if we don't, if we don't relinquish and recognize where we are channeling our affection, where we are assigning value outside of the Lord, we will subconsciously be building a culture of worship that is focused not on God, but on whatever the world brings into view. That's what will happen if we don't pay attention to what God has for us on a culture of worship. But there is a way. I believe that there's a way. I believe that there is a way for us to build this culture of worship that's rooted in Scripture, that's found on our hope in Jesus. There are pillars of worship that's in Scripture that will guide us into getting back to the very heart of what we were created for. We say it all the time here at One Hope. You were created on purpose, what? For a purpose. That purpose begins with our call to worship God. We were created as worshipers chasing after the heart of God. That is our created purpose, ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 96. So how do we do that? That's the first question we have to answer. How do we build that culture? And I think it begins in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 4, look at it on your phone. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you if you want to grab that. If you don't have a Bible, take that one with you. We want you to have it so that you can study Scripture. And this is a great place to start in the book of John. But in John chapter 4, there's a familiar conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. We're going to pick up this conversation in verse 19. And she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now right there, in this conversation, there is a lot that we can unpack, but we're going to look at what, what Jesus reveals as he gives us a glimpse into what Old Testament culture of worship looks like. In an Old Testament culture of worship, there were three things that served a very, very important purpose. The most significant aspects of Old Testament worship, it was a priest-led sacrificial system. And it required three things, a temple, a priest, and a sacrifice required those three things required a temple in exodus chapter 25 god gives very specific directions on how to build how to construct the temple he even goes so far as to give very specific instructions on who could construct the temple because the temple the temple was the place the temple was the meeting place the temple was the place where the power and presence of god would dwell the very spirit of God would dwell in the temple. It was the very center of Old Testament worship. Then you have the priest. See, the priest, the priest was the mediator. The priest was the go-between between God and the people. The priest alone 
could enter the most holy place in the temple. The innermost part of the temple was the holy of holies, the most holy place where the presence of God resided. And the temple alone could enter into the holy place, the holy of holies. The, te- the priest alone could atone for his sins and the sins of the people. The priest alone could encounter and interact with the presence of God. The priest alone could offer the sacrifice. The sacrifice the third most significant part of an Old Testament culture of worship. See, God, God is holy. And the people of Israel, well, they struggled. They struggled like a lot of us do. And the priest would go and he would make a sacrifice, atone for the sins of the people because a sacrifice, bloodshed, was required to maintain relationship between God and the people. In order to maintain that covenant between God and Israel, it required bloodshed. And the priest would go into the temple and would make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. The temple, the priest, and the sacrifice, that was the foundation of a culture of worship that we see in the Old Testament. And I think that's, in a lot of ways, we have a lot in common with the people of Israel. See, we often, like they did, we often forget who we are. We often fall. We often fail. We often replace our worship of God with worship of the world, just like they did. And we forget that God is a God who called us out of bondage and set us in a place of freedom. We forget those things, just like the people of Israel did. And that's why a mediator was necessary. That's why a sacrifice was required. But soon enough, We're going to read in Scripture, soon enough, God is not going to relegate his presence to a temple much longer. And that's good news. And we look back at John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she is referring to the mountain in Jerusalem, the place that David built his temple for the Lord. And she says, we worship on a different mountain, the place where Abraham built his altar to, to offer sacrifice. And Jesus reminds us That this idea of Old Testament worship, it's tied to a place. It's attached to a tradition. It's hinging on an action. It's hinging on sacrifice. But Jesus reveals that worship of God is not going to maintain this status quo for much longer. And he says in verse 22, Jesus reads, he says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. See, God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And Jesus begins to paint this picture of what worship will be, a countercultural form of worship in any way the religious world approached worship in the Old Testament until this point where Jesus comes on the scene. He describes a culture of worship that is empowered by the Spirit of God and is rooted in the revelation of who He is. No longer would worshipers rely on the sacrifice of a priest but on the empowerment of the Spirit and the knowledge 
of Jesus. Soon, and right now, today, we can worship God the Father through the Spirit because of Jesus the Son. A beautiful picture of the Trinity because the Spirit of God gives life to our spirit and allows us to respond and engage and come before God and cry out to Him. A culture of worship is empowered by the Spirit and is rooted in a person. And that person is Jesus. It's empowered by the Spirit, but it's rooted in a person. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, I love this passage. He says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. See, what we know about God informs the way we respond to God. Does that make sense? What we know about God propels us to praise, encourages a response. You could say it this way. Our theology, what we know about God, informs our doxology, how we respond to God, right? So what we know about Him informs and directs how we respond to Him. But again, not just in music. Because Paul writes one verse later, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God through Him, through Jesus. Whatever you do, whether word or deed, we gather together, we admonish and we encourage one another but we do it as a means of continuing and practicing the very worship that we live every moment of our life every single day because worship is not about a place. It's about a person. Worship is not about a musical preference. It's about a posture before God, how we approach Him. Let me say that again. Worship is not about a musical preference. It's about a posture it's about the Spirit of God informing our response to God. All of who we are, our hearts, our minds, our spirits, worshiping God every moment of every day of our life. The truth is, we don't come to one hope to consume worship. We don't come to one hope to consume worship. That would make it about us, and it's not about us. If we come to this place to consume worship, I promise you will leave feeling empty and frustrated because you would be focusing on what you got from worship instead of what you're giving to God in worship. We don't come as consumers. We come as continuing Worshippers, and that makes it about God. And it is. It is about God. See, I believe that a culture of worship is empowered by the Spirit, and it's rooted in Jesus. But it encourages our faith, and it equips us to go. You can say it this way a culture of worship calls us to gather, but it equips us to scatter. 
calls us to gather, but it equips us to scatter. And Hebrews 10 says it this way, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. See, Jesus, he changes the culture of worship. He changes the landscape of worship in the Bible. And now the author of Hebrews is explaining to us the change and the purpose of our gathering. No longer is our gathering the work and the effort of a priest. No, it's changed. Now it's based upon the work and the effort of the people. All of us encouraging one another, remembering who we are and whose we are. See, we are a forgetful people in a fallen world. And when we gather together, it allows us to remember who we are. In Christ. It allows us to rehearse this great story of redemption. It allows us to prepare our hearts and prepare our lives for the wilderness of the world when we leave this place. It's not about consuming, it's about equipping us to take it to the world. When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was an adaptation of the story of Peter Pan. Now we're all familiar with the story of Peter Pan, but I like the movie Hook. Right, with Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, Dustin Hoffman plays Captain Hook, and Peter Pan has grown up. He's a businessman, he's real successful, he has kids, a family. And Peter is struggling to remember who he is. His kids have been kidnapped by Captain Hook, and he has to remember who he is. And all the people in his life, his wife, Wendy, his grandmother, his children, everyone is surrounding him. They're, Peter, you have to remember, don't you remember who you are? Even crazy old toodles. Right, The old man who used to be a lost boy He looks at Peter and he says You have to fly You have to fight You have to save Maggie You have to save Jack Hook is back And Peter looks at Toodles like What are you talking about? He can't remember who he is That he is Peter Pan The flying fighting machine And then Peter through a set of circumstances Finds his way to Neverland And he's surrounded By the pirates, surrounded by the lost boys, surrounded by pixie dust and the wonder of it all, and surrounded by that wonder, Peter remembers who he is. See, we we have to surround ourselves with encouraging and equipping believers, lest we forget the wonder of God. See, when we're here encountering God together, we experience the all. And we remember the wonder of who he is and who he calls us to be. And when we do, through the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit, we are equipped to continue our unceasing, unending worship, directed toward a loving God, yes, but we do it all before the watchful eyes of a fallen, lost world. It calls us, beckons us to gather together. But it does so as a means of equipping us to go. Don't forget that. Finally, a culture of worship requires sacrifice. 
culture of worship requires sacrifice. If we go back to John chapter 4, this conversation with the Samaritan woman, she says to Jesus, she does not know that he is Jesus. She says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, unveiling his glory for the very first time, he says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And what we read in John chapter 4, the words of Jesus, he's going to show us a few chapters later in John chapter 19 as he goes to the cross for us. Here's what I want us to remember. Jesus' ultimate act of worship comes through the ultimate sacrifice of his life. His ultimate act of worship comes through the ultimate sacrifice of his life. Those three things that we talked about earlier, the temple, the priest, and the sacrifice, all three of those things are embodied in the person of Jesus. He is the temple. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He becomes the temple. He offered his life, his body for us. In the Old Testament, before, if you wanted to approach God, you had to go to a place. And now, because Jesus becomes the temple, if we want to approach God, wherever we find ourselves, we call on the name of Jesus, and he answers because he becomes the temple. And in John chapter 2, he says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they look at him as if he is crazy, saying, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And the temple that Jesus is talking about is not a physical structure, but his body, John 2 tells us. See, Jesus becomes the temple, the very manifestation of God, the presence of God is now in Jesus. No longer would reside only in a building. And the ineffectiveness of a temple, of what had become the political, the moral, the religious, the taxation center of all Jewish life in the first century, Jesus embodies all of that. He takes all of that and he's broken for us and he wipes the slate clean for us. He becomes the temple. He becomes our high priest. See, what the priest did in the Old Testament with limited success, Jesus completes with ultimate authority. I love Hebrews chapter 7. And in verse 24, it says, Because Jesus lives forever, he has permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, for us. See, this positional worship of the Old Testament, priest and parishioner, if you will, it's gone. It's gone. No longer do we have to have a single priest in a single building to go to God for us. We have a priest, and that priest lives forever. And so no longer is it about us and them. It is now about all of us for him, encountering and worshiping together, because Jesus becomes our high priest. And then Jesus becomes our sacrifice at the cross Christ becomes the final 
and the perfect substitute for us. A sacrifice is required for us to have access to the Father, and Jesus becomes that sacrifice. And we continue to read in Hebrews 7, it says, Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and unlike any other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. I love this part. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He is the sacrifice. And when Jesus finished his work on the cross, that giant curtain that protected the world from the power and the presence of God. That giant curtain that shielded the holy of holies that only the priest could enter. That giant curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And what it recognized and signified is that now the presence and the power of God through the sacrifice of Jesus is available to all of us. And that extends to today and to tomorrow and for the rest of eternity. Because the culture shift that Jesus brings not only changes the way that we worship, it changes the world. Jesus's sacrifice was out of obedience and love for God the Father. Now watch. God's sacrifice of his son, Jesus, was out of his love for us. So now, our worship requires our own obedient sacrifice as a response to God's unending love. Our unceasing worship is a response to the unceasing love of God. You see that? Mike Cosper, an author, he wrote it this way. He said, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the faith that we profess, it is an echo and an amen to the perfect worship offered to God by his Son. So that means that we have another question that we have to answer. If a culture of worship requires sacrifice, and if Jesus has now become our example of sacrifice, we have to ask ourselves this question. What is he calling us to sacrifice for the sake of holding on to that culture of worship that he's calling us to? What is it that he is asking us to let go of, to relinquish, to stop channeling our affection to, and replace it with God? What is he calling you to sacrifice right now? And for all of us, it may be different. For some of us, it may be time. Others, it may be money. It may be a hobby. It may be a sport. It may be a career. Whatever it is that's holding on to your heart, that's connected to you in a way that's keeping you from seeing God in the form that he is, a living Savior, a sacrifice for us. And I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done for us on the cross, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This 
is your true and your proper worship. See, there comes a moment in all of our lives where we have to offer all of ourselves to God. But it begins with our heart. It begins with our heart. Because the truth is, is that God doesn't just want your song. He wants it and he loves it when we pre when we sing and praise him. But he doesn't want just your song. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want your art or your service to others. He wants your thought. He is not here for us to be entertained. He is not just satisfied with the way that we serve and love others. He wants it all. All. All of it. All of it. Unbridled unashamed and untethered from the world but it begins with our heart it begins with our heart because a culture of worship is not about a place it's about a person a culture of worship is not about a musical preference it's about a posture before God a culture of worship is not about religion it's about a relationship with a savior a culture of worship begins in our hearts it overflows into our lives and it makes its way to a father who made it all possible through the sacrifice of his son. We do all of this that so we gather together. We do all of this so that we can sing to God, so that we can be changed by God, so that we can take God to the world that so desperately needs him. That is why we are here. That's why we are here. There's a song. And I've, gosh, I've sung this song a thousand times. And this week, the words and the lyrics of this song just kept rolling back through my head over and over again. And it says, when the music fades and all is stripped away, I will simply come. Longing just to bring something that is of worth that will bless your heart. So I'll bring you more than a song. For song in itself is not what you have required because you have searched much deeper and the way things appear, you are looking into my heart. And then verse 2, it says, King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I am weak and poor, all I have is yours. Every single breath. It says, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper. You search much deeper within to the way things appear you're looking into my heart and now can we just sing this together i'm coming back to the heart sing and i'm coming back to the heart of worship it's all about you when it's all about it's all about you oh it's all about I'm sorry, just say I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made. 
when it's all about you. It is. It's all about me. It's all about. Come on, just stand together and sing that chorus. I'm coming back to the heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all when it's all about you. It's all about him. Oh, it's all about you. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've when it's all about, all about, all about you, Jesus. And so, Father, right now, God, may we not make it about ourselves and what we can get from you in this moment, but might we make it about you, our temple, our high priest, our sacrifice. Might we make it only and solely about you, about you, wanting all of who we are, beginning with our hearts. May we find together right now a posture of worship that is pleasing to you. God, it's all about you. We want nothing more than to please you in this moment. God, so we sing, I'm coming back. Oh, I'm coming back to the heart. Don't sing it for me. Sing it to him. It's all, it's all about every voice. Oh, it's all about, it's all about you, Jesus. And I'm sorry, Lord, thing that I played. When it's all, it's all about you. It's all about Jesus, be enthroned in our hearts right now. God, help us embody a culture of worship that begins and ends with you. And Father, somewhere in between that beginning and that ending, might we see and respond to you. Might we appreciate the time that we have to gather together to be equipped and encouraged that we can go into a world that so desperately needs you. Father, encourage us, equip us. We offer all of who we are in exchange for all of who you are, our high priest, our great sacrifice. And we pray these things in the very powerful and in the very mighty name of your son, Jesus, who made all of this possible through his sacrifice. In your name, we pray and believe together by saying together, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from One Hope Church. If you would like to hear more, check out our website at OurOneHope.com for message archives, service times, and more information on how you can get connected. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you soon.